Welcome into another edition of Heat Check. It is Gabe Swartz, Peyton Gallagher. Today is December 23rd. We're recording this Wednesday morning, three days after the college football playoff released its final rankings. Alabama, the number one team in the country, will take on number four Notre Dame. Clemson is setting up, I think, their third matchup in the college football playoff era against Ohio State. The second straight year in which they will play a national semifinal. That one will be in the Sugar Bowl, Alabama, Notre Dame. The Rose Bowl has been moved to Arlington, and that is obviously something that disappoints the two of us. But just talking about this and, and talking about who missed the cut, uh, AM was number five. Oklahoma beating Iowa State moved up to number six. Um, we had plenty of conversations this weekend, Peyton, about my frustrations with the top heaviness of college football, my frustrations with Cincinnati not having a legitimate chance, um, and just a feeling of impending doom and that there was there is only three teams that can win the national championship every year. Talk me off the ledge. I mean, if you want me to talk you off the ledge that there's going to be parity at some point, I can't do that. There won't be. But it, it's just it, – it is a fact at this point that the best are the best, and that is how it is. I mean, there's a reason why there's this constant recycle of teams that make the playoffs. Uh, there's three teams pretty much that have been there, and occasionally there's a team that hasn't made it that gets in like LSU last year, and that's LSU. And that's just going to be how it goes. I mean, I think that – to cut to the heart of the issue here, because personally, I think the committee got it right, which seems to be a minority opinion. No, people, I think they got it right. I think they got and, it right. And that's why I'm, I think it's so crazy that people are so mad. And yeah, I want to pipe up for the, the little little guy as much as anybody. I, I thought UCF had a legitimate claim to say, hey, we deserve a chance to prove it. I get that. Same thing kind of with Western Michigan to a lesser extent, however many years ago. Obviously, they didn't deserve to be there. They got handled by a Wisconsin team that didn't deserve to be in the playoff either. So all of this is to say that simply, I think at the root of the issue is that you come from being from Kansas, not to marginalize your viewpoint or my viewpoint here, but you come from Kansas, you come from basketball country. I come from Knoxville, Tennessee is football country. And I think our outlooks on these things are different because I really don't have a problem with how they got there. I think it's like a math test, right? And, you know, your teacher doesn't give you full points because you didn't show your work correctly, but somehow you got the right answer. That's kind of how I feel like the committee got there. It may not be fair to teams like Cincinnati, but at the end of the day, feel like we probably got the four best teams, which is kind of their only job as a selection committee. I'm not arguing against the – final four rankings that they got. In fact, I think Notre Dame and A&M in that particular debate. And I know, so here's the thing. They don't, they don't compare resumes head to head when they break it down in the committee, they, they break them down in pods of three and they have based on everything that I've read and understand of the process. It's basically everyone submits their own ballots. um, And they, they obviously have these discussions and there's people that have to get, taken out of the room based on who's close to what school and whatnot. But 
they wouldn't ever compare Notre Dame and A&M head-to-head. If they did, the strength of record, wins against top 25 teams, all of those types of things. Notre Dame had a, a win over Clemson. I get that they didn't have Trevor Lawrence, but they dominated the line of scrimmage in that game. Mm-hmm. And really, if they took advantage of some of the earlier opportunities against Notre Dame or against Clemson, I'm sorry, on Saturday, that could have been a much closer game. So I don't have a problem with them picking Notre Dame over Texas A&M. I've been as big of an anti-Kellen Mond person as you know, but my whole thing is if it gets to eight, which it will because money and it will because logic, and we get power five conference auto bids, it a makes the conference championship weekend so much more intriguing to know that auto automatic bids are on the line at every single time. And that's one of the things that to bring it back to college basketball intrigues me the most about like champ champ week where maybe a team who's not super, super deserving can win the conference championship game. And I think to counteract that, because I know someone would say, oh, you don't want what's – a, what's a great example? You wouldn't want a bad ACC team like a, like a pit who's gone eight and four and somehow won the Coastal to come in and upset Clemson and get an auto, auto bid in. So yeah. what, what my argument against that would be is if we go to eight – and we go to conference championship games, our automatic bids, do away with divisions. Take the two best teams. We, we saw it in the ACC this year. They did not have divisions. Worked out plenty fine. There was competitive balance. There was Notre Dame, North Carolina, uh, Miami. Gonna, there, was, there was different options, though, of teams that would have been intriguing matchups, and we weren't constrained to just, oh, this division, which has had six different teams go to the – go to the conference championship game in the last six years, we're going to get another decent, but probably crappy team to get killed by Clemson. If you do away with divisions, you're not going to have some random seven and five team upset, make some crazy upset and then just vault their way into the playoff. You're going to have at the very least top 20 teams most of the time. And what I would say is very wrong about that argument is there is not necessarily always going to be a situation where it's the seven and five team. There might be a team like Miami because of how they finished the year might not be the best example this year. But if Miami doesn't lose to North Carolina, their only loss is Clemson. And they're in a situation where they didn't get a chance to play Notre Dame. Right. And then they get left out and we never get, to find out how good Miami is. That's why we need to have divisions, in my opinion, because it's going to take the randomness of the matchups out of it. It's going to force these teams to determine which of them is actually best in a head-to-head scenario because Alabama has to play A&M. Instead of Alabama maybe skirting A&M and then A&M and Florida play, it it creates a whole mess. I think the structure of it is necessary, these divisions and conferences. I think the structure of it can help create schedules, but... Um, Unless, 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 let me interlude. Yeah. It, it's like the Big 12 where they play everybody. And in these super conferences, like there's the Big no way. 10, the ACC and the SEC, yeah, it's literally impossible. So that, that would be my only argument. Yeah, and I get that. I just, here's the thing. If what you say about Miami is true, and hypothetically they beat North Carolina, which they lost by 30-plus and they gave up no, nearly no, I, 600 I, I, I yards rushing. Things change year to year. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, I get that. But in that hypothetical situation, if the playoff does go to eight and they don't get the chance to prove it, 
there's a chance that, you know, they, they slide in to one of those two um, at-large bids. So right. I just think – and the crux of my argument, which I don't know why it took so long to get to this, is if it, if it goes to eight teams, what we have clearly shown with only four teams in the playoff is that players, by opting out of bowl games, by the recruiting classes, it feels like have gotten stacked even more to the point where – if you haven't been in the college football playoff or, or participated in or won a game in it, you're, you're just not in the conversation for these elite, elite guys. And I'm going to, and I know that your argument is going to be that it, it, it won't change regardless. I think that if you go to eight teams and you give more shots, hypothetically, even if the, even if the realistic outcome is that the one, two or three seed wins most years, which it probably will, um, in a hypothetical world where there's eight teams there, there's at least a perception that there's more chances. And therefore, I think that there could be a, a better perception from players that if I go to a different school who's more likely to be eight than two, let's say a Wisconsin type of example, maybe that's not one because they recruit to a certain type of player most of the time but even a Notre Dame who's constantly in that conversation and maybe doesn't always get the most elite elite talent they get a ton of four stars if there's more doors to get there I think that it would create more balance it it bothers me that college football in seven years of the college football playoff has had 28 births filled by 11 programs and since 2014 which was the first year of the college football playoff, the final four has had 19 different teams play in it. That bothers me. I, I just wish there was more call. There was more competitive balance. And I get that sometimes that things change and like Florida has dominated the sec. Alabama has dominated the sec and it kind of rotates, mm -hmm. but right now, Alabama and Clemson going to six out of seven uh, college football playoffs. I think it's, it's boring for the sport. I don't. I think that the best teams are playing each other. And if, like, you really, really love the game more than the chaos, and I'm not saying that you don't, but I think there is something so alluring about March Madness and that anything can happen that just can't be achieved in college football for a lot of reasons. The primary one being, though, that when you look at a team like Kentucky that gets the best guys every year, but they're gone after a season well, there's this thing in college basketball where truly young teams don't win national championships, right? If that were something that existed in college football, where a guy like Leonard Fournette a couple of years ago, or I'm trying to think of a better example of just a truly – like Trevor Lawrence comes into Clemson, tears it up for a year, and then has the option to go pro and leave, it leaves these programs in a more – fluid state where they're having to rebuild more year after year. The difference is the reason there is less randomness is you don't have the, the guard Layton senior heavy Richmond team that you have this year for the spiders that can do some damage in March, right? That could actually win a national championship. You, and I'm not saying Richmond's going to win a national championship in college basketball, but they have the chance to. The reason they don't in college football is because unlike when Kentucky loses all of those five-star freshmen, Alabama gets them back for not one year, but two more years. And then the talent disparity 
grows and grows as those guys gain experience, A, and B, just are there for longer, making Alabama better and better. So the best programs are going to stay good, and that's just what's going to happen if they've got somebody coaching them that can actually get something out of that talent because we've seen, like, Tennessee, Michigan get these guys and not do anything with them. Um, that being said, I, I kind of fight back whenever you say that, hey, if we expand the playoff, there's going to be more – um, spreading out and, and more dispersion of the top talent. I don't think that's going to happen because it didn't happen when they went from the BCS system to four. So I just don't see why the point of, or what the point is for a receiver, a five-star receiver to go to Wisconsin, right? Where they get to be the eighth team in the playoff, but they don't get developed like Julio Jones and Amari Cooper and Devontae Smith. They're still going to go to Alabama. If you want to be a great quarterback, Clemson's going to say, well, you know, we had Deshaun Watson, we had Trevor Lawrence, and now we've got DJ, and you could be the next one. So, I mean, you tell me if you want to go to Lincoln, Nebraska, or Happy Valley, or if you want to go to Clemson, South Carolina, and be the next great one to have a paw on your helmet. I, it just, I don't think that there's going to be a big change. Ellis, guys from the state of Louisiana, five stars, are going to stay in Louisiana. I, I just don't see that happening. I understand your gripe with it. If there was a world where we could have more randomness, That'd be cool in college football, but I don't knock it. I don't have a problem with it because that is just how the sport is. And I just think that there is discrepancies between what can be expected of college football and saying the system's broken because Cincinnati doesn't get a chance. I'm going to do the the big boy, I'm a troglodyte SEC fan thing of like, hey, are you going to pick Cincinnati to beat Ohio State in a head-to-head matchup? Because here's the deal, right? Ohio State on eye test does not deserve to be in the playoff. I saw Matthew Berry tweet this. I have a tremendous amount of respect for Matthew Berry forks up, but he said Ohio State I pass or I test pass the test end of discussion. And they didn't. There are only two decent matchups. Justin Fields played horribly, had multiple turnovers. They didn't look good. They squeaked by. They only played six games. They passed no such eye test. But based on what they have, based on who's coaching them, we come to the conclusion that they're one of the four best teams, which is probably correct right? Cincinnati was more impressive, deserved to be in the playoff more than Ohio State. To me, that's a fact. But I also think Ohio State's a better team. And that's going on conjecture and what I infer about talent and what this team has. But with that said, I, I, that's why I think the committee got it right. I can hear an argument for eight, and I've been all over the place on this little diatribe because I've got a lot to say about this. But I will hear an argument about eight. I think eight might be the right answer. I honestly think that six with the first two seeds getting a first round bye is probably closer to the correct answer because you can make an argument that six best team in the country this year could make a play for a national title. You could say that about Baylor and TCU the first year of the playoff where they were good enough maybe to make a run at it. Most years, the eighth best team in the country, unlike in college basketball, is not good enough or deserves a chance to play for a national championship, in my mind. So, I mean, maybe well, you implement a system where the committee decides some years if it's going to be four, six, or eight, like it's ran- not, not random, but they can decide if the eighth-best team is deserving of a chance. That gets a little bit sticky. But I, I think six or eight has to be the cutoff point because after that, the 16th-best team in the country, because if this keeps expanding, the 16th-best team in the country has no business competing for a national championship. None. They don't. Yeah, I mean, just like just like Hampton and North Carolina A and T and such don't have any business. It's the same type, even though it's bigger names. Here's my thing: 
you said you said maybe you like chaos more than more than great games. I love the great games. Like I'm not I'm not gonna lie to you and pretend like I'm not gonna turn on the college football playoff this year. I'm going to watch the games. Right, exactly. I'll, I will watch the Orange Bowl between who, who's the matchup? Isn't it North Carolina and Texas A&M? Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll watch that game. I'll watch. I'll watch most of these. Games. I'll watch bad Mac football on random Wednesday nights, and maybe that's just because I'm a member of the Moneyline podcast as well. But the point being, the only thing, the only chaos that college football has to cling to is these stupid debates. It has nothing to do with what's on the field, and it could have things to do with what's on the field if they just made it an 18 playoff. We don't have to have this stupid argument between Cincinnati and Ohio State if we would just give auto bids to the to the best power five conferences and the best group of five team, and then it would just get settled on the field. And you know but what? How do you determine the group of five team? Do you, I mean, are you proposing a group of five championship game? Because I'd listen would, to the argument. Either that, either the best group of five champions, and it would be selected by the college full playoff the, the week of the conference championship game. I don't think a lot of conferences would go for that because they still want their money from the conference championship game. But Otherwise, it's just the same way it's always been, whether it's been the BCS or the college football playoff. It would just be the highest-ranked group of five team at the end. And maybe you put a stip, uh, stipulate, like something in the contract, stipulation, whatever you want to – sorry, I couldn't get the word out. Maybe they have to be a top-12 team to get there. I think even if – but then if you add that, odds are the committee is going to put them at 13 and be like, nah, you know, they weren't good enough this year. So yeah. there's just – I don't know. People I don't know why it would. I don't know why it would hurt people, and why people watch. I know it's a stupid argument, but watch twelve seeds beat five seeds all the time in the NCAA tournament, and go. You know that just could never happen in college football. Like we couldn't even entertain the possibility of trying to see what happens. Well, my my only rebuttal to that is that if it were a situation, because in AAU basketball you see guys play sometimes multiple games in a day, and they can do that, right? Physically, it's impossible um, for football to play that many games. Now, I think at eight, maybe even 16, although I am in strong disagreements with them going to 16 for a lot of different ethical reasons. And I don't want them to go to 16 either. Yeah, and, and that's why the Pandora's box of, okay, we expanded it once, we've expanded it twice. I mean, people are going to – because the, the team that's left at nine is just going to be just as unhappy right now um, in an eight-team world as the team – like AM that's left at five with Jimbo Fisher saying we play in the SEC. Maybe there's something to that. Maybe there's not, but that's an argument for a different day. My whole thing is somebody's going to be unhappy no matter what in the mechanism of determining who the best team in the nation is, I think generally has been correct in the six, seven year run of the college football playoffs. So when people say it's like this meritocracy and that the, the system, the system is not broken. The system's doing what it's supposed to do. People just don't like how they get there because little guys like Cincinnati don't get a fair chance. And by the way, I think Cincinnati was dominant throughout the course of the year. This has been the best G5 team. I think they're better than the UCF team. I think that the Cincinnati team is the best G5 team. The way they play the game is the most directly translatable, I think, to a bowl scenario because of how physical they are, because of their quarterback play, et cetera, et cetera, because of their coach coming from a, a championship-winning Power five background at Ohio State and Luke Fickle. I think all those things kind of stack up to say, hey, Cincinnati's probably the best that we've seen. 
only really had two close games this year, the close-ish game against UCF that they won on the road. Very hard place to go play, the bounce house. And then the conference championship where they won on a walk-off field goal after a long, long layoff against Tulsa. And in bad weather. In the bad weather, who, by the way, is a really good team that, like, pushed Oklahoma State to the edge and probably should have beat them. Um, All that is to say that, like, Cincinnati is the most deserving yet, and they still didn't deserve to be in, in my mind. I mean – If it expands, if it expands, I think we still end up with the same champions, which is good in your book. And I think that we end up with more games – we end up with more games that people would say, quote unquote, matter or feel like they matter. I would personally rather see, because if, if it was going to be at larges and it was going to be the power. Which I think, by the way, let me jump in here. I think it should be eight at larges. I don't think we should have AQs. Okay. Either way, I think that Florida would get in, in an eight team scenario. And I would much rather see Florida in a bowl game with Kyle Pitts in a bowl game that matters than Florida playing in a game that quote unquote doesn't matter anymore. And Kyle Pitts opts out and like good for him. Cause he's going to go get that bag in the NFL. Right. Well, he, he was dealing with injuries throughout the course of the year. And I mean, I think for him, I'm not, I don't know the guy. So maybe it's a little bit reckless to just speculate about where his intentions lie. I mean, I, I think that there is a sense of honor in playing college football. And I think that there is, a degree of somebody in my, my mindset who's never played the sport, that it is important to, you know, play for your guys. The guy sat out with a lot of injuries throughout the course of the year. Florida was okay with or without him. Obviously, he makes a big difference. But for a guy who battled injuries the entire way this year, um, I don't know if where his mindset kind of lied throughout the course of the year because of the nature of the injuries and then he'd come back the next week and be fine and play through it and then he'd be hurt the next week and then they lose to LSU he gets hurt early against AM, and they lose that game but he's uh, yeah you get what I'm saying he kind, of, he kind of felt like he pick and chose his the games he played throughout the course of the year is what I'm trying to get at you know the games he missed were kind of I guess he missed the Georgia game but that was because he got freaking laid out yeah um but he was protecting himself, and rightfully so. He's going to be the highest drafted tight end since Eric Ebron, probably. Um, maybe, I guess, TJ Hawkinson was Hawkinson. a top 10 guy, too. But he's, he's going to go top 10. And I, I get that. Go get your bag, especially in a year like this. But that's, that's all well and good, and aside from the point. Um, you want to talk about parity, though. If we go to eight teams, the SEC is getting four teams in fairly regularly. <laughs> like, well, not if there's – and that's why I'd say not if there's AQs. And th- what I'm saying is that the AQs I don't think deserve to be in over a team like this A&M team that's – I mean, Jimbo makes a good point of they play in the SEC, and I know people don't want to hear that. And is, this playing field is more level than it's been with this offensive expansion that's happened in the game that's kind of equalized things across the sport. But when you look at an LSU team that's going to have 20 guys who play on Sundays on this roster, which is probably more than the active amount of pros – from 60 to 70% of the schools in college football, not just at the group of five level, but at the power five level. Like, I think it's not unreasonable to say that this LSU team probably has more NFL players on roster currently than Baylor has active NFL guys right now, right? And that LSU team is like the fifth to sixth best team in the SEC West. Like, there is something to that. It is harder week in, week out in the SEC, regardless of 
how good the top teams are against the other top teams from other conferences. That's a fact. So the SEC will get three and four teams into the playoff, I think, fairly routinely, and it will look like bias, and people won't like that either. But I think those teams deserve to be in over an AQ from the Pac-12. I'm sorry. Like, like A&M, Georgia, even, Georgia would beat the hell out of Oregon, I think, if they got together on a neutral field with a game with some kind of substance to it, some meaning. If it wasn't just a, a bowl game, like they were playing the Sugar Bowl, right? Like, yeah, I think but Georgia, like Oregon or USC, they're wiping the floor with them. So that's my pushback against AQs. But if we go back to when Andrew Luck was at Stanford and such and, and the Pac-12 had an elite Oregon team, a really good Stanford team, some pretty solid Washington teams and other, other situations, there was a time where we were saying the Pac-12 and the SEC was like a legit debate and the Pac-12 was solidly the number two team in the country and or the number two conference in the country. And – just the complete lack of management by Larry Scott has kind of ruined things, but everything's cyclical. And so the PAC 12 will sure. get back to being better again at some point. And that's why I think, and, and, and when, when the lull and the poor play is the ACC or it's the big 10, which you can make a pretty solid argument that the big 10 sucked this year. And, uh, and, and the lull is the big 12 and, God forbid for you that the SEC has a lull, um, then it would be a, a it will be something where people will thank the automatic qualifiers and such. But we will talk more about bowl games and such. I think on Sunday's pod we can maybe predict uh, college football playoff games, um, the New Year's six games, and and some of the other bigger bowls. It's kind of tough because the matchups and the bowl weeks and bowl mania and such isn't everything the same and most of these teams are treating the bowl games more like road trips than celebratory week-long festivities like normal years which kind of sucks um but we hope that it'll be kind of back to normal next december and we'll be back to 40 games instead of 25 and uh just wild stuff going on all over the place with that we're gonna talk um college basketball's biggest surprises of this year and as we get into that, I think the first one that we had kind of ties in a lot to something that went down last night. I attended the West Virginia-Kansas game last night. And before we talk about um, maybe Kansas's biggest surprise, we should just talk about, A, that game, because you texted me and, and had significant thoughts or thoughts that kind of shocked me. Um, given your previous stances regarding this team um, and just the environment and such and what they did. So do you want to further explain your take? Because it's kind of confusing, but also makes plenty of sense in comparing this year's Kansas team versus last year's. So, so last year's Kansas team, I felt like, was completely about this one thing, which was this unstoppable force they had, which was the, the Doke, Dots, and Pick and Roll. Nobody in the nation could stop that because Yudoka Azubuki was this physical force that there just wasn't an answer for in college basketball. You don't have guys as athletic and motivated as him because, I mean, I'm going to get into this with my surprises, but a guy like – Kofi Coburn should be what Doak was, but it's hard to get big guys to, A, try as hard as Doak did last year, and, B, 
get their body to a point where they can athletically be what he was for the course of a season. And even him, he, he had some injury issues down the stretch. Like it's hard on a big guy to play that hard for that long. But with that said, nobody in the country could stop that pick and roll. And, and that's what Kansas's team was. I mean, I know they had other good players, but it, this team this year feels so much more balanced and so much more. I mean, there isn't the star power necessarily that there was with Doak and Dotson. I don't think that maybe we'll talk about Jalen Wilson, but maybe Jalen Wilson is the guy that could win national player of the year. Maybe it's Ochai Akbaji. I think both of those guys are probably the most likely to um, Garrett's just not going to put up the offensive numbers he needs, but they don't have that guy. Like both those two dudes were finishing first team all American in some instances. I don't think that's going to happen with this team. What I do think is that one through five, one through six, one through seven, this Kansas team is a lot more complete. I like the way they play a lot more offensively. It's a lot more fun to watch. I think the defensive potential isn't necessarily what Kansas was last year because they don't have a, a seven foot three dude who's like blocking shots at the three point line, but they do have a group of players, I think, that as a unit make up a better team, although I don't think they are as good as they were last year, if that makes any sense. Yeah, it, it, like last year's team beat you over the head and dominated you physically on Just both sort of ends. On both, yeah, and it was, it was suffocating. It, was, it wasn't like Press Virginia, the, the old type stuff. It wasn't Havoc and Shaka and that type stuff. It was just great half court defense and it was centered around a phenomenal big who protected the paint statistically better than anyone basically aside from Anthony Davis in college basketball history so question, question for you yeah defense because I know that Jeff Withy is the all-time blocks leader I think in college basketball history right uh he's he's definitely in the top three do you think that how much better do you think Doak was as a rim protector than Withy because I know you got to watch both at Kansas. Um, I think he was every bit as good. And do you not the think fact that – What? Do you not think he was better? I think you can make a case that he was better given that he elevated the team's defensive numbers Yeah. in a way that – and just look at the fact that they were the number one team in the country the year before and he gets hurt misses the rest of the year and they just fall to what is literally the bill self floor, which is a four seed in the tournament. And they, right. and the no, sky absolutely. was falling. And then that, that shows you the difference between a bill self floor and like a Calipari or a Roy Williams floor, which we've seen over the last two years. And we'll talk about those two teams later. If we extend this conversation into the surprise, and if we extend it into the discussion of what I saw last night in person, Looking at the box score, because I guess sometimes sometimes you go to a game and you kind of lose the context and such yeah, sure. of, of what happens. Looking at the box score again this morning, it actually was the same thing that I felt like and was there was two thoughts that overwhelmed me. A, Kansas took 37 three-pointers and made 16 of them, which is an absurdly high amount of attempts and an absurdly high amount of makes for a Bill Self team. Like that was, that was 2018 Kansas type shooting numbers. And it was at one point in the second half, they were, they had taken 63% of their attempts had been three pointers, which was the highest rate of a Bill Self team ever, um, which is not really on brand for him. But, and, and you would think if they're taking that many threes, you would think that they are, some bombing team and they're just getting 
bruised and battered inside. But West Virginia, their two leading scorers were both guards. You had McNeil and McBride. McNeil had 24, which is career high. He was six for six from three in the first yeah. half. Yeah, shocking. Just could not miss. And then McBride, who went eight for 16 from the floor and had 19 points. So they got 43 points there out of their guards. Oscar Shibwe only had three points. He only played 18 minutes, and he went one of five from the field. Yeah. Uh, Matthews, Matthews went three of 11, and Culver went four of nine. So the, none of West Virginia's forwards bullied Kansas inside in the way that you would think they would. And hand up, that was the best David McCormick we've ever seen. Like, that was the ideal David McCormick last night. He had 10 points. He had 11 rebounds. He had three assists. Wow, he actually passed the ball some. Had two blocks and didn't foul a bunch, didn't turn the ball over, didn't take any – well, I guess he took one mid-range jumper, but it was with uh, a minute left in the game, up by 15, and that's perfectly fine. So I was shocked by the fact that they played great interior defense and didn't just get – if if McNeil doesn't have a career first half, that's a 25-point win. Yeah, over a top-10 team. Over a top-10 yeah. team. And what I will say to you, Gabe, is that it's becoming increasingly clear to me, and this is a mark of a fantastic coach, that what Bill Self is great at is, A, defining the right rules for players, and then B, when Kansas is at their best, and we've talked a lot about David McCormick in this instance, about what he needs to be for Kansas to be at their best. But for them to be at their best, what Bill Self has been so good at over the last two years is convincing guys to buy into their roles. And that's why Kansas has been better, I think, than what I anticipated before the year. I think even what you may have anticipated before the year. I think we thought that they might be a top 10 team. I didn't even think that coming into the year. I started to warm up to them approaching the season, but I wasn't there in the offseason for sure. They are clearly one of the three best teams in the country right now, and it's not particularly close. The reason that is is because guys that didn't have to do things last year have been equipped to do, do those things this year, and everybody knows what they are supposed to do. And – now that Kansas is in this, this situation where they can play bigs off the floor because they have so much shooting and so much dribble drive ability, even when a guy like Jalen Wilson comes into the game and is so good at that delayed little pick and roll action where he's not necessarily going to be there to catch a lob, but whenever the guard throws up a shot and misses, he's going to stream in there, scream in there, grab the ball and lay it back in on the putback. All this goes to say that this offense is a variation of last year's where it is pick and roll oriented. Yes, but it funnels the action more so to the guards and letting guys like Garrett make decisions about getting to the rim. And it's almost like a triple option offense in football where the quarterback is a trigger. He's not always going to make the play. He's either going to kick it to the pitch man in the corner for a three in this instance, or he's going to throw it up off the glass and let Wilson do something after the fact or McCormick, but they've designed an offense that gets the best out of their guys. And considering the circumstances of this offseason, considering the amount of turnover Kansas had to deal with this year, that is a tremendous credit to Bill Self, who is running away with Coach of the Year early on this season. And I just feel like the way Kansas plays basketball this year is so much more complex and interesting to watch. Um, and that, honestly, we talk about surprises. One of the biggest surprises of the year for me, because of 
how everybody has gotten better on this team. I texted you earlier in the season. It feels like with Kansas, and I really do think that there are two coaches in the nation that are better at this than anybody, Jay Wright and Bill Self, of getting guys to develop year over year. Because it feels like everybody on this Kansas team has gotten better from last year. And maybe that's because they were always as good and they're in a bigger role now. But it, it genuinely does feel like Christian Brown, Ochai Banji, who was supposed to be the guy last year and wasn't, and they figured that out and they adapted. Um, when you talk about, you know, Jalen Wilson, who had to miss last year pretty much, coming in and being huge for this team. You talk about Garrett, who I think really is in a lot of ways similar to what he was last year, but has to do more. He's a significantly um, better shooter. Yeah, like, and that's, he, he had that's two. He had two catch and shoot, like no hesitation three point shots that he made last night. And I was like, that. And he had a step. He had a step back mid range jumper. And I was like, that Marcus Garrett did not exist last year. Right. And then it's like to go to your point, the thing that Bill Self does better than anyone in the country is a draw up out of timeout plays and b have multi year developmental players at a blue blood, which is just not how Calipari and Coach K are doing it anymore. Right. And that's yeah. the thing, like. Jalen Wilson is a redshirt freshman. He broke his ankle in the second game of last year. And I had him written down as my, as one of my five biggest surprises of this year. You, you, you just have all of this Kansas roster, which is totally agreeable because I think you had different expectations for them than I did. You didn't think they were a top 10 team. I thought they were a solid two seed this year. And I think they're trending towards being one of two, one of two, one seeds from the big 12 along with Baylor. Which is by the way, by the way, the best conference in the country. Oh yeah. It's, to me, it's not close. All the Big Ten people, I mean, I know Rutgers. I was, I love Rutgers. They're better than I expected. It is the Big 12 this year. That is the best conference in the country. It's certainly the best of the top. It's not going to get the most bids. The Big Ten will get more bids. But it's going to have more teams second weekend. It's going to have I, – I certainly believe one or two Final Four teams because I think Texas or, or Baylor is going to get there, and I think Kansas – what they saw last night, that was a, a Final Four team. But to go along with it, Wilson developed. McCormick, he was bad at the start of this year. It looks like Monday there was all these reports about Bill and McCormick, and, and I sent you these analytics graphs that showed that given usage rating and offensive rating, the combination, McCormick was in the very far bottom right and was having literally the worst year given amount of shots taken and such in Kansas basketball history. Um, and one of the worst in the last 12 years in college basketball history, it looks like he's developing in season. CB has gotten better. Oach has gotten significantly better. He's one of the first people I think I've ever read an article about, you know, he's overworked his shot and such, and like it actually being true. Um, and then Garrett's getting better. And and the last thing I'll say on this team, and the, the last thing that they need to do is just find consistent bench minutes and, know exactly what they're getting out of Bryce Thompson because he only played 10 minutes last night. Everyone on the starting lineup played more than 32. And if if Bryce Thompson can give them 15 minutes instead of 10 and can give CB and Oach and Marcus Garrett two, three minute breaks each and and add six minutes of, of, of game time. And, And they only had four points off the bench last night. All of them were him. He was one of four. If he can take, a little bit of a step and find his role Kelly Oubre style where it's slow at the start of his freshman year. By the end, he's a significant piece. That's how this team becomes a national championship team. Because I don't, I don't, at this point, I think they're a solid final four team. I still think that they are a half step, a half step behind 
Gonzaga, they're probably on the same level as Baylor just because I don't believe in Scott Drew as coach, and I always have. Fair enough. Um, here's what I would say, and maybe we need to talk about Kentucky. Maybe that has been talked about too much. I'm not sure. Some people are like, they should fire Calipari. No. Let's slow down. Like, they may not be good. They'll probably get better. But here's the difference between Kansas and Kentucky. And I'm going to start sounding like, you know, Dan Dockich and Fran Priscilla now. But teams that have an abundance of good ball handling, guys who can shoot and play defense are usually going to be pretty good. Kansas has a lot of that. Kentucky doesn't. I feel like that's pretty simple. Like, you check those boxes. Kansas at any time is going to have four guys on the floor that are going to be comfortable hitting an open shot, are going to be comfortable putting the ball on the floor and making a decision, and are going to be good defensively and are going to be able to communicate and stay in front of people. They're going to win a lot of, ba- like a lot of basketball games. Like, it's, it really is that simple. You look at Baylor, they're the same way. You look at Gonzaga, they're the same way. I mean, it, it really does kind of boil down to that at its essence, right? Yeah. So do you want to – let's go to – let's keep keep it rolling with our surprises. You, I said Jalen Wilson. You said this entire Kansas team. Um, we ju- You just brought it up. So I will bring up uh, one of my five, which is just Kentucky being hot garbage right now. And yeah. so here's the, here's, here's the background. Um, Kentucky is one in five at the moment. That is the – First time they've been one in five since the 1926-27 season. That was four seasons before Adolph Rupp took over as the head coach. Um, it was the fifth straight loss on Saturday to North, uh, fifth straight loss for Kentucky Saturday when they lost to North Carolina. That was something that had not happened at Kentucky since 1989 or 1990. That was the first year in which Rick Pitino was coaching uh, Kentucky, and that was a team that was on probation and. Um, Davion Mintz and Olivier Saar have just not given them production. They've not given them leadership. Um, Saturday when they lost, and this is totally something that probably only I would bring up because I think that because of what my job is and what I'm trying to do and such, but Keon Brooks, who has not played a single minute this year and is was the only player on the roster who had scored a bucket for Kentucky before this year, He's been out with a calf injury um, and has not played a single a single minute so far. And he should be back soon. And, and Calipari said that right, they, really, yeah. they, they really need him back. Um, he was the only player on the Kentucky roster who was willing to speak to the media following the game on Saturday. And he said, here's his reason as to why. Quote, I'm one of the leaders of our team. My guys didn't feel like they were up to it. My teammates didn't want to do it, so I take that on. Me being a leader, me being the only person who has some experience last year, I'm not going to put them out here in this vulnerable situation where emotions are high and you never know what could go on. So I went out here. Just defending my teammates is all I'm out here to do. That should not be something that has to happen at a program where all of these guys or most of these guys want to be NBA players next year. They're going to be contractually obligated to speak to the media next year if things go according to plan. And the fact that none of them can sit up there and listen to the music, I understand that it's obviously a tough time in Lexington and that they are probably getting a ton of hate on social media and such. Oh, it's going to be bad. But you have to speak. You have to speak. If this is yeah. what you if this is what you want to do and you want to be a one and done guy, well, you have to speak for your play because you can't just you can't force a teammate who hasn't who had no responsibility for the loss and has had nothing to do with your losing to go out there and cover for you. Sure. 
No, I, I wouldn't necessarily say I disagree with that. My only pushback there would be that maybe we don't necessarily know where that decision's coming from, right? Like that could be something that is the athletic department who's making that choice for them because I've seen athletic departments do that to kind of protect their athletes and protect their own school. Because, I mean, in, in this case, it is several freshmen. I don't hold Brandon Boston and Terrence Clark and those guys as accountable for this. But dudes like Damian Mintz, who, who did say a couple days ago that this is not a good basketball team right now, and he is coming from – I wonder if he regrets going to Kentucky considering he came from a Creighton team that is pretty good. Um, but guys like Olivier Saar and him, who – Jacob Toppin even, who's not played all that much. But these are guys who have talked to the media. They've played in college basketball. Maybe you would expect them to step up and say something. But I, my, only, my only thing I'd say there is that – Maybe we don't necessarily know where that decision came from. But, yeah, it, it, it's just weird to have a guy like Keon Brooks being the one addressing the situation in his and, warm-up. And that's after a couple weeks ago, I think when they lost to Richmond, uh, the next game or, or in some case, I forget, I forget what the situation was, but at some point Calipari sent an assistant coach to do the pregame media for him, which – it, it seems like there's a disconnect between their media relations staff and the team and the locker room and that whatever the media relations staff is doing, because I guarantee you they're not walking in there going, Hey, can we get Keon? I, there's just a disconnect and there's not people willing to participate. And that's the sign of a bad basketball team. And, and they're 305th nationally in three point percentage. And you said if they had better, if they had a Tyler Ulis or if they had, the point guard play has been so bad. Yeah, the, the point guard play has been horrible, but also everything surrounding it has been bad. And just because somebody else is a, maybe a little more competent of a passer doesn't mean that they're going to make shots. It's it's. I was reading Kyle Tucker of The Athletic and his analysis of what was going on, and he said it's, it's just at this point you just have to start laughing when John Calipari tells you that they make shots in practice because for three straight years now, they've been a poor three-point shooting team. And it's been their – it's literally been, if we were going into making a champion and, and the criteria, it's been this the easiest thing to just knock them for and say they can't win a national championship because they're, they're 10% below the mark necessary to win a national championship. And the fact that Calipari keeps saying they shoot the lights out in practice and then they just clang bricks all day during games, it's something that at this point is just funny. Well, and I, I would also chime in and say this, that you look at not only the fact that they can't shoot, but the fact that – and I think in large part because you've got Devin Askew as your primary point guard, right, which is – it's been a problem for them, not because Devin Askew's necessarily a bad player, but because he's a guy – he's 17. He reclassified, missed his senior season amidst this pandemic to come be Kentucky's point guard, and he just isn't ready. And, I mean, they, you, you can't necessarily ask a guy who's a junior in high school to be ready to do this right now. I, I think Devin Askew will be a good player. He's the only guy on this team right now that I believe is shooting above 30% from three, which, I mean, that speaks for itself. But it's a combination of things where Kentucky is a decent defensive team. They rebound the ball okay, right? But when you look at them offensively, why they're shooting like 40% from the floor, A, they can't shoot the three. So teams can kind of contract around the rim. And then when they do that, these are young players that don't know how to make decisions on the floor, the right decisions consistently. So they are now ranked 292nd nationally in turnovers. They average just under 17 turnovers game. That's a turnover. If you're doing the math at home, 
they're turning the ball over every four times down the court. They're turning it over. Like that's, that's middle school JV basketball stuff. And it's just, there's no continuity. I do expect them to get better throughout the course of the year. This is going to be one of the biggest challenges though of Cal's career, because keeping this thing together long enough and keeping people bought in long enough, they already had to suspend Cameron Fletcher earlier this week is going to be a real challenge, especially in an SEC that's as deep and competitive as Kentucky's seen in a while. I mean, I don't think it's for Kentucky. When you're looking at what they've looked like so far, Kentucky, you can really make an argument has been like the 12th best team in the SEC so far in the non-conference oh, with sure. only like Vanderbilt and South Carolina behind them. Yeah. It, it, it's not something that makes, I mean, it, it, everything that has gone wrong makes sense, but it's not, we never thought it would get to this point. And, well, and I, like, I, they are very much in danger of having the Nerlens Noel year where they go to the NIT, which the NIT is probably not happening this year. Cause it's not like, no one's going to want to participate in that. Um, and I think they, they went to, they went to the NIT and Kentucky right. was so anti like hosting an NIT game that they, they went and played Robert. as the one seed and lost to Robert Morris. Well, yeah. and then part, part of that was because I mean, Cal's career started at Robert Morris, et cetera, et cetera. But like, I just, and let's contextualize that team. That team was figuring it out and was looking like they were going to trend to maybe win the SEC, had a huge game at Florida, college game day, big deal, top 20 matchup. And then Nerlens Noel, who was looking like a potential national player of the year candidate, tears his ACL and they falls apart. But this year, I mean, I just, it's not going to get better. They're not going to learn how to shoot. They're not going to, they may stop turning the ball over as much, but I mean, if they're doing this against teams that they've seen in their non-con, and given their non-con's not easy, but they should handle Georgia Tech and Notre Dame. Like, those are not necessarily great ACC teams. It's just, it, it doesn't bode well, and it's, it's going to go downhill. And if I'm a guy like B.J. Boston, and I'm not going to speak for them. I don't know where their heads are at. I'm not going to be the guy who just, like, conjectures about this stuff. But I'm trying to put myself in their shoes especially when it's the situation where it's like there isn't necessarily that continuity and it doesn't necessarily feel like you're playing with like a really, you're playing for your teammates as much. Right. I don't know why I sit through this and tank my draft stock. If I'm BJ Boston and Terrence Clark, cause it only gets worse. I mean, they aren't in a, a winning situation right now. And in a, a year where there isn't an NIT even to play for and with everything that's kind of gone on, I don't know why I wouldn't necessarily just pull out and just work on my game the, the Darius Baisley way by myself with a trainer and try and get prepped up for the, the draft because the unknown about those guys is probably going to help them at this point, because what we do know is not helping them. That if that happens, it'd be an abomination for well, the Cal one and done program. And it would be just a, Gabe, it would go I mean, against everything that he's had success wise. Think, and that's why I don't think it will happen. But think about this. B.J. Boston was going to be a top five pick, for sure. And you're looking at how he's trending and how a guy like even Jalen Suggs is trending. And I feel like you may want to stop the bleeding as fast as possible and just say, hey, blame it on the situation. I'm going to pull out of the draft. That's enough. You guys don't get to see anymore. Or I'm going to pull out of Kentucky and just work on the draft. You guys don't get to see any more of this badness. And you guys can just kind of like fetishize my skill set from afar while you don't necessarily see anything. And kind of the little mellow ball approach, if you will. Yeah, I mean, it's been. Well, and then 
the opt-outs from like the football perspective where guys were just dropping in like week eight and stuff was super odd, but we didn't have anybody. I don't think that was like this caliber of draft prospect just right. peace out in the middle of the year. Well, if you don't have anything to play for though, my question would be like, why? Because it doesn't look like Kentucky has any higher aspirations. And I would say that the, the, you keep playing because you are a competitor. Well, and I mean, I, as a GM, I would like to see that, but I mean, this is bad. It's hard to compete whenever it's this bad, but I mean, I guess, you know, Cole Anthony did it and respect respect to him. You know, he was bloody on the floor laying out there against whoever they were playing. And he's like, walk-ons against Duke. That's why I love Cole Anthony and will never turn my back on him, no matter how inefficient a player he is. But Aside from all that, you know, it's, this is just another quick aside on this path of talking about things we didn't expect. But if NBA GMs this year, it's going to be tough if guys are pulling out because you already – all the guys who went the G League route, we may not see them. We may not see Jalen Green play basketball at a higher level. Which is or what I, I said last year when he was choosing that. I was like, I don't know. He's just going to get drafted off of potential. Right, and it may be the same thing with guys like this. Like, half the top ten we may not have seen really play much organized basketball in a year, which will be fascinating. And I think it's going to help guys like Jalen Suggs fly up draft boards because he's dominating at this level, and I think that's really helping him. Let's talk about Jalen Suggs because he was one of my biggest surprises. Not that he's been a a great player, but just that if you remember, when we did the the mid-major preview, "Quote unquote mid majors, basically the non power non power six uh, programs, and we talked about Gonzaga. I said for them to be the best team in the country, or for them to be their hit their peak, Mark Few has to just give the reins to Jalen Suggs and let him go, and he has done that so far. And no, there. I mean, I I understand that there's already a green light when you're playing against an Iowa team that doesn't try to defend and doesn't hide it, um, but there were moments on Saturday where Jalen Suggs was pulling up from not even just NBA range, like six, seven feet behind the, the three point line and just canning jumpers all day long. And and he's at the moment, he's averaging 15.8 points per game, six assists per game, two steals per game. And he's shooting 54.7%, 55% from three point range. Um, so I will ask you, he's been shockingly good to me. Uh, he was the Naismith High School Boys National Player of the Year, or one of the five finalists. Uh, he was the first athlete in Minnesota history to win Mr. Football and Mr. Basketball in the same year. We know what all of his accolades are. Is he good enough to surpass Cade Cunningham for the number one pick? And is he also good enough? Uh, I mean, he's certainly good enough to keep this uh, Timmy Kispert Suggs debate going of who's the best player, and it's very 2018 Villanova esque. Could they get three first-team All-Americans? Is that possible? Especially if this team ends up going undefeated, which is on the table. Uh, it's going to depend on what other schools do. Because, like, I think Jared Butler is going to get one. Illinois fading a little bit and being more of a Sweet 16, Elite 18, right. Final but 14. But Io's not the reason. Io's been fantastic. Yeah, and so we'll see if he can – I guess winning doesn't necessarily matter for that award as much or for the – all-American list because like Miles Powell got on the list when he was going 21 and 10. Watch but, it. but uh to that point, I I think he might be the number one pick. 
I get that Cade Cunningham, I get that Cade Cunningham has been like no, I, I we think thought he'd be pretty much, but I think it's more. Jalen Suggs just has some dog in him. Yeah, and so does to be fair, so does Cunningham. Yeah, which I appreciate in both of them. I just think when you look at the physical upside that Cunningham presents, that it's going to be too overwhelming prospect wise. Um, I, I think Suggs is kind of cementing himself though as potentially that number two pick, kind of um, a la. I don't know. I mean, John Morant's not a fair comp because, I mean, Zion wasn't even the supposed number one pick coming into that class. But when you look at what Suggs is doing, that doggedness, the fact that he came back and played through that ankle injury that he had against um, well, West Virginia, that, that is rare. And that's something that kind of competitor is something that you really, I think, have to admire as an NBA GM. I don't almost said NFL. I don't know why. Maybe it's because he plays like he's a football player. Maybe because he was a football player, actually. He was a three-star quarterback and could have played power five football. Um, But when you look at what Suggs is doing, I think you can't deny that he's better than we thought he was going to be. He's Gonzaga's best player, I think, in terms of raw basketball playing ability. That's not particularly close. And, yeah, I think he's turning himself into a top five pick for sure. I, I don't know how you could deny that at this point. And maybe that's surprising to you, but I was always so excited. I, we kind of got it with Zach Collins and Rui Hachimura. But Mark Few is such a good coach. I was excited to see what a, a really truly out-and-out superstar talent would look like with him. And the answer has been pretty good so far. And I, I feel like we might see more one-and-done caliber guys going to Gonzaga. I think that this is one of the things that stands out the most to me is that knowing that Zach Collins came off the bench, knowing that Rui, it felt like was held back at times. It shows you either a, how Mark few wants to play basketball or B just how much he trusts him that like, he doesn't normally give freshmen this type of uh, leash to just kind of be free and take the, sh- take the shots you want. And they, it is, maybe it's not, that big of a deal because it's something that most of this team does and they just kind of take the shots that present themselves um, that some teams would say are bad shots, but, but they're a top five offensive efficiency team in the country. And it's a large part because of him. Yeah. It's the best college offense that I can recall in recent memory at this level. I mean, when you just talk about, and, and let's also not linger here, but just to kind of enunciate the fact that, Mark Few started Karnowski, a very accomplished college player, over Zach Collins, right, which was a natural thing to do. Um, and he could have done that here because he had Andrew Nemhard, who is a very accomplished and now eligible player that he had available to him before the season started who had been Florida's best player for about two years. And um, that guy naturally slotted into the starting spot with Kispert and Ayayi in the backcourt. But – the fact that he trusted Suggs enough to go with him anyway, I think speaks volumes about what kind of player Suggs is um, and what kind of special NBA talent he presents. Uh, this is a loaded draft class, absolutely stacked with four or five guys that you can make a reasonable argument for, for that first overall pick, especially with guys like Jalen Green, who were supposed to be up there that we're probably not going to see if the G League doesn't have a season. And Jonathan Kaminga. Exactly, who reclassified in. Um, I don't know. It's going to be fascinating. But Suggs is the guy who's helped himself the most by far. And he's just – he's a ton of fun to watch. And it's not like he just dog – like, it's not like he just dogs it on defense too. I think the play that stood out to me the most from Saturday was 
three-on-one Iowa break. And, I mean, C.J. Frederick probably should have passed the ball, but he just swooped around one of the McCaffrey brothers, blocks the shot at the rim, and, and he, he's been great. So that was one of my surprises. What else has, has stood out from, from your standpoint? Well, I don't know how we can look at Missouri and not be <laughs> surprised as a team that, I mean, all of us kind of wrote off before the season. And I don't know why we wouldn't have. Everything about Missouri – was like, okay, they, they don't have John Tay Porter anymore. That They've not been very good under Conzo Martin. This might be Conzo's last year there. They've been kind of competitive. They had some expectations here. They had Michael Porter Jr., but he missed most of the year. And they made the tournament anyway, which is a credit to Conzo. But Martin has been a guy who has struggled as a coach at different places. I mean, it was bad at Cal. Even when they had Ivan Rabb and Jalen Brown, they underperformed. Um, and then he jumps ship. He goes to Missouri. Um, and... Everything was kind of chasing that Tennessee team that he had with Jarnell Stokes um, and Mabin and some of the guys that they had there that went to the Sweet 16, could have gotten further. This is a tremendous coaching job. I and mean, we talk about Coach of the Year candidates. He's got to be up there. I know Illinois, when you look at Illinois and what they've done so far, they've played, I, I think, probably five tournament teams if you count Ohio. And they've gone two and three, which isn't really that awe-inspiring. Um, they've been – underwhelming and that's one of my other surprises we'll talk about with Kofi Coburn but when you look at Missouri and the wins they've gotten they beat Illinois uh, they barely squeaked by yesterday against uh was it Bradford or Bradley I always get them confused it's they Bradley. Had it's Bradley which is a, a decent team um and probably, probably the third and, best team in the in the uh, Missouri Valley I, I, I think you can make an argument they're just as good as Loyola and some of the other teams I mean they they've pushed good teams in their non-con but when you look at what Missouri's done, I don't think anybody anticipated them even being a top five team in the SEC this year. And they look like they might be the best or second best team in the SEC this year, especially with K Kentucky falling off. So, yeah, I, I don't think we can that, – that is the biggest surprise to me of the season so far is that Missouri actually is as good a team right now. At least they look like it. Yeah, and I, I was high on them. And when we previewed the SEC, I said that they had – so much returning production and they, they did, but sometimes that's returning production from teams that have losing habits and such. And it looked like now that they, that returning production was just guys getting experience and that they've learned their lesson and that, that they've grown from it. I think that the Bradley game last night is a perfect example of a game that that program probably loses a couple of years ago and just like drops the rope at, at the end of the game, but they fought through it and won without their a game. And, that's something that they're going to need a lot in a deep SEC this year. So I'm excited to see where it goes. I, I'm excited about watching the SEC and I'm excited about watching certain programs, uh, namely one of my surprises, which has just been a just overwhelmingly great defense from Tennessee. Um, I wrote down Texas, Texas and Tennessee, just because I think that you can kind of connect the two um, with the Rick Barnes connection to both programs, but Sure. Shaka, Shaka Smart's defense and, and the length of Texas has been impressive. They are the number seven ranked defense in the country, according to Ken Palm. Tennessee is the third ranked team in adjusted defensive efficiency. Um, they had played, or the or last I checked, Tennessee had played five games, and their opponents had scored 47 was Colorado. Cincinnati scored 56. App State scored 38. Tennessee Tech scored 49. St. Joe scored 66, which hasn't necessarily been the most impressive competition. But to go along with our discussion about Missouri, they play Missouri on December 30th. And that's a game that is going to test both 
the Vols and the Tigers very early in conference play. And we'll see what happens because Missouri has some guys who can really score it. And Tennessee has some guys who defend their butts off. So getting to see that matchup very early in conference play is something that should be very exciting. And, and to go along with great matchups, Texas, who I already, already said is, has been very impressive defensively. They won the Maui, just overwhelming teams, namely Indiana and North Carolina um, with Greg Brown and, and, Kai Forbes and, and just Matt Coleman's been better at the guard spot than, than we thought he would be um, or, or that I thought he would be. Um, and, and Texas, if they get off to, and they got by Oklahoma state in their first game in big 12 play, if they get off to a good start, they have a chance January 2nd to go into Lawrence and make a statement against Kansas. And, and those two teams, Tennessee and Texas are programs that, the expectations coming into the year were high, but I think that the early indications are that they can really solidify those expectations and maybe change them and, and recenter them or expect to go to a second weekend or a third weekend in the NCAA tournament. Yeah, no, and I, I would totally agree with everything you just said. Um, when you look at a team like Texas that has this with Kai Jones, who's, I mean, really a fantastic NBA prospect and has elevated his stock a lot. I think he's been just as good, if not better than Greg Brown so far. Um, and both have been really good. When you look at these teams that are introducing these, because in both instances with Tennessee, it's Springer and, and some of the guys that they brought in in this recruiting class with Texas, it is obviously the guys that I just talked about, Kai Jones and Greg Brown, but you've also got returning veteran guard play. You've got, guys that have been around in your front court. I talked about this before the year. Now, Tennessee is better defensively than I thought um, they would be before the year, right? Because they were so young and the guys that they had coming back weren't necessarily like all world defenders aside from Eves Pons, who is every bit as good as I thought he was going to be this year. I still think he could be a dark horse SEC player of the year candidate. He certainly has been the best defensive player in the league so far this year. Um, I don't see either of these two teams kind of going away from what they've been so far. And in the case of Tennessee, in the case of Texas, something that Shaka has not found at Texas so far, this team really has an identity defensively that they're going to be a good defensive team, but they also have tough, gritty shot creation and guards that can kind of carry the load offensively if the offense breaks down. But also, they play a good brand of offense. I love how both these teams have started, and I don't know how you don't get excited about Texas and Tennessee. I mean, I picked them to go to the Final Four. I picked Texas to go to the Final Four, if you remember that. Um, one of the other things I picked preseason is another one of my surprises, which I'm, I'm pleasantly surprised by. James Booknight is even better than I thought he was going to be. Um, you know, he, he, is a, he is one of the, the Booknights of the – round table, the guard table now at, at UConn. I think he is, he is up there with Shabazz Napier and, and Ray Allen and Kemba Walker with what he's doing. This, and Rip Hamilton, this rare level of guard play that they've gotten from him so far. I mean, he scored 40 in that loss versus Creighton. They lost in overtime. They lost at home. One of the games that I feel like if there had been fans there, UConn probably gets that done. Um, they should have got it done regardless. They missed a couple yeah. of years late. Well, and, they, and they need other guys to step up. Uh, Book night for this team to go where they, they need to, um, to be that Final Four caliber team, like I think they might be, it's got to be RJ Cole. It's got to be Jackson. Some other guys got to step up for them. 
Um, Book Knight can't just go get you 40, but he's got that rare level of creativity finishing and his arms are so long that he can just do things that a lot of guys can't do. Um, I think other UConn guards like Jeremy Lamb with their ability to like reverse stuff. He's got a nice little mid-range game. Um, the offense isn't super refined. They do a lot of the Bobby Hurley stuff that, you know, like we're going to weave it 16 times at the top of the key and then somebody's going to drive. And then Book Knight does that. So, I mean, like it's that Hurley connection. But I just – I've been so pleasantly surprised with how prolific a scorer he has been so far this year because I can't say I even expected him to be a guy that would just go get 40. I, I thought he would be a guy who could score 22 points a game on a good UConn team that can maybe win the Big East, and I thought that might be enough for National Player of the Year. But right now he's averaging close to 25. He's doing it somewhat efficiently, and he is solidly this early in the season in my, my top five on my employer rankings. So, I mean, he's been terrific. And even a pleasant surprise to me, kind of like how Kansas, I feel like, has been for you, where you were right. You didn't know you were going to be this right. Yeah, and it was like, honestly, it's been like – at some point they're so much better than what you expected that you yeah, were, exactly. that you were just like wrong. Like you, you weren't high enough on them and you can't actually get, I mean, you were, cause you, you said something about national player of the year. You said book night could be in that conversation and he like actually will be. Um, whereas like I was actually a little too low on Kansas and I, I mean, maybe not. I, I said that they were a lock to be a two seed and they'll probably be a one. So that's the way it is. Um, anything else that shocks you or surprises you before we close things out with scholarships and sanctions? Yeah, so, I, I mean, this will be one of my sanctions as well. But Kofi Coburn, I mean, I, I went back. I didn't get a chance to watch it live before we did the podcast today. I, I knew that Missouri was going to be one of my surprise teams, so I wanted to make sure I watched Missouri and Illinois. And this is something I've kind of noticed with Coburn, especially in their losses. He just doesn't look like he's trying that hard, and I, I – Really, it's hard to get inside a college player's minds. But when you – I talked about what we saw from Doak. It, it's harder for those big guys to get up and move around and run down the floor. But you just see him walking so often. And so often it's just a little bit disengaged defensively and just kind of flailing at shots to try and block them. Um, and this is a guy that needs to be a dominating force. I mean, the guy, he's seven foot plus – close to 260 pounds, if not over. And it just doesn't look like he's giving much more than 60 to 75% effort a lot of times, unless he's got the ball in his hands on the block. And for Illinois to be as good as we thought they were going to be, and I, I, I won't lie, I didn't watch every Illinois game last year, but it felt like when he won Big Ten freshman of the year, he was so much more engaged, right? And when he chose to come back, I figured – we were going to see a guy really trying to prove something and improve his draft stock by like really giving a lot of effort. And it just doesn't feel like that effort's been there so far and thereby Illinois has been disappointing by I think the preseason standards that we had, because I mean, they've not necessarily gotten a ton of consistency out of guys like Cabello and Adam Miller and Trent Frazier, but they shouldn't need to. I mean, Io DeSumo has been everything we thought he was going to be. Coburn has not. And that's the reason why they've lost these games. Yeah. And it's like, Part of it, I think, is is just as a big in college basketball, half of the battle, especially when you're that big and you're seven foot plus, and we've seen it with like Zach Eady at Purdue, is it it takes some time to understand what you can and can't get away with physically, like physicality wise, in the paint. And like, 
I don't necessarily think it was a flagrant, but in the going back a week and a half or whatever it was yeah, for the Missouri game, I don't think that that like quote unquote elbow up high was really a flagrant. I do think he was just kind of clearing space and the Missouri defender just kind of got lower and the elbow ended up hitting him in the chin. Um, right. And, and those are just unfortunate things where you just kind of get penalized for being big. Um, but your, I mean, effort is certainly something that. Right. I mean, it's more. It's just he's not – it feels like he's just not in the right position a lot. Like, his feet aren't moving defensively the way they need to. And that is why Doak was such an effective shot blocker last year. And I don't mean to just compare every good college center to Udoka. But, I mean, he is the most recent, I think, go-by of what a truly dominant seven-footer at the college level can look like. His feet were so active. He was so engaged all the time. He was always in the right position, especially in the offensive end of the floor as a rebounder. You're looking at a guy that – in Coburn, gets the ball in his hands, commands a triple team, and just turns around and hits a jump hook, right? And that's the kind of dominant level he can be at consistently. And it just feels like defensively, he's not in the right position a lot of times. He's flailing to try and block shots, and Illinois' defense has subsequently not been as good. And when he is on the offensive end of the floor, he's late to get down the floor. He's not setting screens hard. He's not really rolling to the rim the way he, he could be. And on the offensive glass, he's just never engaged as you would want him to be. And maybe it is harder for him because he's a bigger guy. So he's thinking about getting back on defense, but he's just not running the floor very quickly. And I don't know if it's physical limitations or effort limitations, but it feels like Coburn, for every good thing he does for Illinois right now, it feels like there are two negative plays that he makes. And yeah. it just can't be that, that way for them this year. And it, at some point, it, you get to the point where it's like either you're one and done and you sell high on your stock that quickly, or you just get to a point where you figure out, you know, I'm going to be here four years and I'm going to become the best person and the best player that I can possibly be. And then I'm going to leave. And that's what to, to continue the, the Doak conversation. That's what Doak did, but we have to be willing to give Coburn time because there were certainly, it's not like he was perfect and it's not like there was, there weren't struggles for Azubuki and being a huge guy in college basketball is a lot harder than it probably looks like it is. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I think that he'll get it around and I hope he does. Cause I picked Illinois to go to the final four. Right. Um, I've got, one more here. Um, so I will say that I, I've already talked a little bit about Michigan State, right? It's a little bit harder for me to say this now, but after they lost Northwestern, yeah, which is a, a scrappy team that I, I think in a year is going to be really good. Um, they were really bad last year. They've got some good young stuff, though. I will say that I think I am surprised by the – total team shot making ability that Michigan state has um, with rocket Watts and a lot of the guys they have just wanted to throw that out there. I still think Michigan state is really, really to me, four teams have separated. Gonzaga is kind of in a tier by themselves. Then Baylor and Kansas and Michigan state, I think are the four teams that have really stood out to me. And the only other thing I wanted to say in terms of surprises is the absolute lack of shooting that Duke has surprised me. I mean, I had final four expectations for Duke. I thought they were going to be the team that would win the ACC, and I still think they'd be my pick right now because UNC, Caleb Love, nobody's talking about this. Caleb Love has not been good. No. He has really struggled. Um, and they're getting by, 
because they've got just such dominant big play. But Duke, with guys like Wendell Moore and Matthew Hurt and their offense, need to see some more shooting. Really need to see some more shooting. And I was surprised to see a team that had some vets because we talk about the one-and-done teams, and this is why Kentucky's struggling with it. When they move the line back, that's when these freshmen stop being nearly as effective as shooters. And, and it makes sense. Like, you're shooting from deeper. It's harder. Um, I guess bigger guys are going to give bigger, better contests, and it, it makes sense that freshmen aren't going to shoot the ball as well at this level. With that said, I figured with the mixture of young guys and veteran talent, Duke would be a better shooting team, and they haven't been so far. So that surprised me as well. Yeah, I'm not super high on Duke. And, I mean, that's not something that has been hidden. But also, not being super high on them is relative to where they've been year in and year out. And they will probably figure it out and be more than a competent ACC team and then more than a competent conference contender and probably a team that will still go to the second weekend of the NCAA tournament. So that's probably probably what to expect. I do there's some weird stuff going on with Jalen Johnson and the foot stuff and his injury or whatever it is that's keeping him out. Um, and we'll see. It's, it's just, it's a weird team because you don't know what their best can be if their best player is Matthew Hurt. Yeah. And, and yeah. It, it hurts a weird player who still somehow after putting on the muscle feels like he needs to put on just a little bit more as well. Cause physically, it's tough for him. You saw it against Kofi Coburn. It was not easy for him against Kofi Coburn. Um, but he, he's got an interesting skill set. The shot needs to improve a little bit for Duke to um, do what we think that they, they could this year. Yeah, but knowing Illinois' problems and knowing that they beat the crap out of Duke is certainly something interesting to yeah. think about. Um, yeah. All right, let's close things out with scholarships and sanctions. I'm going to start uh, kind of negative – it's a negative, but it's a positive. So we'll go with scholarship. Paid leave. Paid leave gets a scholarship this week because LSU is paying Bo Pelini tons of money to not coach after one season. Um, Auburn is going to pay Gus Malzahn $23 million to not coach. Arizona is going to pay uh, Kevin Sumlin $17 million to not coach. And I'm just going to predict it now. I can already see – Memphis paying Penny Hardaway to not coach in a couple of years because he just scored or his team just scored only 49 points at home against Tulsa the same day as he agreed to a five-year extension with the school, which is just uh, definitely some bad timing, but also maybe a sign of things to come and maybe uh, a little peek behind the fact that I don't, I we're two years into this. I still don't know what Penny Hardaway is good at as far as COVID. recruiting illegally true illegally recruiting <laughs> and, uh, and so with that I, he's on scholarship for eventual paid leave but he's probably going to get sanctions at some point yeah I, it's no uh, i see sometimes when they renegotiate these contracts and give the extensions it's so the buyout will lessen i don't know if that's what the what's actually happened here. I know that that kind of happened with Jeremy Pruitt this off season at Tennessee. Um, he got the, the, the contract extension and it's a bigger buyout and Tennessee is now actively look self-reporting recruiting violations so that they have a, a reason to fire him with cause. I'm not making this up. Um, but aside from all that, like 
Yeah, I just I what is Memphis doing? This guy is now under. I, I know he's an alum, and I know he's through and through a tiger, but two straight years with talent that is so much better than the rest of the American. And they're going to be scrapping to make the tournament. Like th- this should be a top 15 team and they're bad. They're just straight up bad. I don't understand, but and I don't think, I don't think that they're going to scrap to make the tournament in like, unless they just start running off games. They're not going to the make the tournament this year. The Americans decent, but unless they beat Houston and win 12 or more of their conference games, they're not going to. Well, the fact that, that Wichita State's not that quality win anymore, the fact that Cincinnati has had a rough start to the year and is kind of in a rebuild year, there just aren't <laughs> – UConn's not there anymore. Like, there just aren't wins for them to get that are convincing. So, they got to win the league or beat Houston a couple times, and I don't think either are going to happen. And that's ridiculous considering they probably have more – I'm just conjecturing here, but probably have more ESPN 100 guys on their roster than the entire rest of the league combined. Yeah, uh, possibly. I think Houston probably has just as many. I mean, but Houston's best player was like a three-star, aside from Quentin Grimes. It's it's just incredible to me that like Memphis is not what uh, I'm I'm I can't with them. Enough Memphis talk. Enough Penny Hardaway. Yeah. Okay. Um, all right. Let me give a sanction here to uh, Bobby Hurley. This is frustrating. I mean. At this point, it's just like, you just can't have nice things. I know that Bagley's not there, and I know that's a big deal, but really, uh, UTEP, UTEP, you're going to lose to UTEP? There's a worse loss, uh, Ken Palm ranking-wise, since his coaching debut with uh, ASU when they lost to, I think, Sacramento State. It's like the one thing that you could count on if you're ASU is that Mr. Mr. November, Bobby Hurley – He's going to step up. He's going to get those big non-con wins. You were going to have that to fall back on after you sputtered in Pac-12 play, and that was going to be your tournament resume. And it, it just has not happened this year. Uh, it's been a pretty disastrous non-con run. I know G- GCU is actually a pretty good team. So that and winning on the road in a somehow packed house, I, explain that one. 400 people. It was not a packed house. It just looked like it because it of really the cardboard cutout. Really like it. it really did look like it. Um, I, I don't know if I buy those numbers, but it's, uh, when you talk about what ASU has looked like so far this year, and they're going to continue to improve, but got to see more consistency out of Remy Martin, got to see more consistency out of the offense, got to figure out a rotation, got to figure out who the center is. It's just, they are so much less of a sure thing than you would have anticipated. And that doesn't feel great. Yeah. And it, I mean, everybody loves to call him Mr. November or Mr. December, but, like, Bobby Hurley the last two years has gotten his team better in conference play. Yeah, and that's fair. Improved the team more then than he did at the start, which is progress uh, from starting and being the last undefeated team in the country and then going to the first weekend of the NCAA tournament, which is super hard to do. My sanction or one of my sanctions goes to bowl commissioners. I know that they got this right and that Army ended up with a – matchup against West Virginia. But the fact that, out of the whole game because, you know, Pruitt didn't want to hurt himself anymore and they had more COVID stuff. But yeah. yeah. But the fact that a nine and two army team wasn't given or found did wasn't able to find a bowl game in the first when they all were first released Sunday afternoon um is a shame. So sanction to bowl commissioners because that's they they literally got 
isn't South Carolina playing a bowl game and they're like two and seven? Yes. Yeah, that's get out of here. Well, I mean, this is the problem with being an independent in the year 2020 when there are fewer bowls. And I mean, these bowls are actually beholden contractually to have teams from certain conferences. But on the topic of bowls and commissions, and I'm sure that there is a contractual reason that they have to keep the Rose Bowl title. But as somebody who is the king of the kingdom that is the sentimist of the Rose Bowl, right? Like this is something that's sacred to me. Them keeping the Rose Bowl name on a game not being played in the Rose Bowl upsets me deeply. So very frustrating. I'm sure there's ad partners and reasons why it's going to keep the Rose Bowl name, but if it's not being played in Pasadena, it ain't the Rose Bowl. I'm sorry. I, thought- if, I swear to God, if Chris Fowler has the gall to call it the granddaddy of them all, I'm going to punch a wall. I don't think that's going to happen. I'm pretty sure, pretty sure that there is not, uh, that like contractually they're not allowed to call it the Rose Bowl game if it's not at the I mean, Rose Bowl. Well, they are calling it the Rose Bowl game. <laughs> That that's so weird. That, the Rose Bowl from Texas, and that's very frustrating. But to go along with the college football playoff discussion, and to go along with uh, more sanctions, because I guess I'm just gonna be negative. I have one very very positive thing to go out with, out to end the show with. But another sanction goes to respect Dabo Sweeney. Did you see this, no. Dabo Sweeney? His, uh, I know this is this is you should take this with an absolute grain of salt, uh, because not every college football coach actually fills out their own AP or sorry for their own coaches poll. Mm-hmm. Um, but Dabo Sweeney in the final coaches poll that was released on Monday morning had Ohio State ranked 11th, and so so uh, not a lot of respect heading heading that way. I don't know why he would be – considering how the last two playoff games have gone, they, he's 2-0 and against Ohio State, right? I mean, I, does he really – Do we want, does he want A&M that much more than, like, he wants to see Ohio State? Is that really what he wants? Like, I, I don't – does he just know that his team is going to roll Ohio State? I guess, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I, This is billboard material for the Buckeyes. I don't know why you do that. Yeah, like – even I, I spent way too much time yesterday looking at college football coaches, uh, final coaches polls, just to see like who respected who and whatnot and stuff. Mm. But Dabo putting Ohio State at eleven was was something. I think he had Coastal Carolina at ten and like Cincinnati at eight. Of course he did. Oh my god. Um, no, I, that's incredible. I, I I'm excited for that game. I really am. You know I. Anybody who says that it from a drama standpoint that having like AM or even Cincinnati in there would be better, you're wrong. I mean, Justin Fields, potential number two pick versus the probable number one pick, the Jets, that element of it, it's like who who's gonna play for the Jets next year? Um, Trevor Lawrence now might be on the Jags, not the Jets. There's just especially considering last year how that game went and how Justin Fields treated this offseason about getting another opportunity didn't feel like he played his best against Clemson there's just so much on the line in that game that I don't know how you couldn't get more fired up for that one from a theatrical standpoint than you would be for 
Clemson versus Cincinnati or Clemson versus A&M or Clemson versus anybody else, really. Yeah, and and just the rematch of last year's game makes it mm-hmm. must-see. And, and I would think it'll be a better game than Notre Dame-Alabama will be, but don't have a lot of faith in that. So who, who knows? Um, do you have any uplifting things, any scholarships, any sanctions to finish with? No, I'm just All negative right. today. Only so safe. I think the last thing that needs to be said, and this is definitely a scholarship, um, just from the entire heat check show uh, is for the health of Keontae Johnson, the Florida yeah. forward. Um, it was announced yesterday. He will not play the remainder of the season because the heart condition that they found um, when he collapsed against Florida state in such a scary situation and such um, he needs at least three months off. And that's obviously something that should happen. And um, him getting his health back and getting out of what he was in with the medically induced coma is definitely an encouraging sign. Um, super uplifting video to see him dancing at the hospital with his teammates and such. Um, but Definitely, we're rooting for Keontae. We want to see him back uh, on the court maybe next year if that's possible. Um, But glad to see that he was able to make it through. Um, Glad to – it's been a while. Glad to get back and do another podcast for Heat Check. For Peyton Gallagher and I'm Gabe Schwartz, like, rate, review, subscribe, anywhere you can get your podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Sunday or a Monday, you know that we flex. True. You can never make it more obvious. You checking for the heat, that's cold. That's cold, that's cold. Get it to the top of the top of this. You can never reach uh, these hoes. in the booth and we spin the truth. Aye. We inspire the youth and we get to the loop. You do what it does and we do what it do. We turn to the max and they got you on mute. You. Ooh, flow so high, so you know Aye. I had to run it back. Blazers a ball, and we run it like a running back. Gabe brought chalk, so you know Aye. we have it from a dead. Turn you in the so you know Aye. we ain't no coming back. Now we done with that. <laughs>